Hi, I'm Shane Bishop, Senior Pastor at Christ Church. I'm so glad that you have joined us for this Lights series from the Gospel of John. Today I'm going to read from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, New Living Translation. God sent John the Baptist to tell everyone about the light, so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was only a witness to the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was going to come into the world. Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians that the light of Christ shines to everyone. Galatians 3.28 reads, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free man or woman, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Whereas Matthew introduces us to Magi from the east who followed the light of a star to worship the light of a baby, Luke's nativity highlights visitors of a more pedestrian fair. And they received an even more luminous invitation. You see, Luke is a Greek writer. And in his gospel, Jesus declares his mission to be this. Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me. For he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. In Luke, Jesus is going to be the one who brings good news to the poor. Jesus is going after the people that nobody else wants. And when you think about the poor in Israel, you're talking about shepherds during antiquity. Shepherds didn't have much. They were at the very lowest end of the social ladder from these hills around Bethlehem that a boy shepherd, an inconsequential boy shepherd by the name of David who lived a thousand years before learned to throw a sling and, and play a harp and write a psalm to the Lord. And now a thousand years later the descendants of David who are watching the descendants of David's sheep receive an incredible invitation. Luke reports, that night some shepherds were in the fields outside their village, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord shone about them. And they were terribly afraid, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Come on, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. They ran to the village. And they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. And then the shepherds told everyone what had happened, and all who heard the shepherds were astonished. In ancient times, sheep were the number one cash crop in Israel. That's very difficult for us to get our heads around today because sheep, where they're not worthless, are not the number one cash crop in America. But sheep were a big deal. They were cheap to feed by free grazing. But since they're dumber than a bag of hammers, sheep needed near constant supervision, particularly when they were out free grazing. Inner shepherds. Shepherds were hired hands who spent the warm months on the Judean countryside. And out with the sheep, they had to fight off predators and rustlers. They had to find water and pasture. They had their hands full watching these sheep. 
You know, I used to wonder why the nativity story wouldn't have had a, a shepherd offering Jesus a lamb. I mean, wouldn't that have been awesome? A, a, a lowly shepherd offering a lamb to the lamb of God. But when you get understanding the relationships between a shepherd and sheep, a lamb wouldn't have been the shepherds to give away. A shepherd was somebody who was hired to watch someone else's sheep. It simply wasn't his to give away. It's interesting to me that uh, the Nelson Study Bible tells us the Greek word translated Savior doesn't just mean provider of salvation, but it has implications around the terms deliverer, protector, preserver. You see, sheep wouldn't last five minutes in the hill country without a shepherd. And in a sense, the shepherds were the saviors of the sheep. The angel announced to the saviors of the sheep that the savior of the shepherd had finally arrived. You know, there's two things I really love about this passage. Number one, the enfranchised wise men only got a star for the birth announcement. But the disenfranchised shepherds got an angel garbed in the, in the radiance of the Lord. The wise men, the magi, they had to figure it out. But the shepherds got a message no one could possibly miss. The second thing I love is the angel didn't announce the good news and then say to the shepherds, y'all take my word for it. The angel told the shepherds where this baby was and encouraged them to go and see for themselves. Luke reports that the shepherds ran into the village. The Gospel of John was probably written by the apostle John or one of his disciples by the name of John the Elder from Ephesus somewhere around 100 A.D. The gospel is John's translation of the Christian message from Jewish thought to Greek thought. It's a challenge similar to what the world and what the church faces today. Last week I suggested that we live in a time when the modern world that reared all of us over 50 has sort of disappeared. And this new, more jagged world has arisen from the ashes so what I'd like to do is I'd like to push that a little bit further this week. The Enlightenment, which informed and shaped the old world, attempted to replace religion and faith with an optimistic theology of the humanities. The, the idea was that as people knew more and more, they would become more and more decent and caring and concerned, and that science would save. The problem is the Enlightenment happened a long time ago. And by now, diseases were supposed to be cured. And the hungry were supposed to be fed. Everyone was supposed to be getting a great education. Crime was to be eradicated, racism obliterated, and poverty exterminated. And then it was almost like the buzzer sound when we got to the year 2000. The new millennia came, and all of a sudden, children began to abandon the failed empirical promises of science, just as their parents had previously abandoned the effective offerings of religion. And many in our culture today have declared science to be a false god, a false religion. For though it explained mystery and magic, it did not solve the problems of this world, and it has failed to make us happy. Charles Darwin, a prophet of modernity, lamented late in his life that his life was simply empty. 
He wrote, my mind seems to have become a machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts, enfeebling the emotional part of my nature. The loss of these tastes was the loss of happiness. So where does all of this leave us? Where does the fact that in the Enlightenment so many people abandoned religion and turned to science and now we get a point where science doesn't seem to be saving us, where does this leave us? I think it leaves us precisely where we are. Philip Yancey in his book Rumors of Another World writes, No society in history has attempted to live without a belief in the sacred. Not until the modern West. And so we now live in a state of confusion about the big questions that have always engaged the human race. Questions about meaning, purpose, and morality. Now people with no faith find themselves lost and alone, with no overarching story or meta-narrative to give promise to the future or meaning to the present. You see, that's what I think people like so much about Christmas. Christmas gives us that larger story. It gives us that meta-narrative narrative and without a belief in that there's no promise for the future no meaning in the present sting summed it up so well in his song if i ever lose my faith in you he wrote people say i've lost my faith in science and progress you could say i've lost my faith in the holy church you could say i'm a lost man in a lost world You could say, I've lost my faith in the people on TV. You could say, I've lost my faith in the politicians. They all seem like game show hosts to me. Science and technology have failed to answer life's big questions. And they've left us spiritually adrift in the darkness of the night, staring into our cell phones. We've never been in more need of a light Or more need of prophets to shine the light to us. That gets us to John. Verses 6 and 7. God sent John the Baptist to be a witness to the light. So that they might believe because of his testimony. John the Baptist was the first prophet Israel had seen in 400 years. He lived lean. He was garbed in animal skins. He literally ate off the land. He was on nobody's payroll, and he just played it the way that he felt it. He preached an edgy anti-establishment message of repentance from sin and then showing repentance by godly and righteous living. He called out the Jewish king Herod on his moral shortcomings, of which he had plenty. And it cost him his head somewhere around 28 AD. His chutzpah played well in the first century Roman Empire. And apparently after a while John the baptizer became a bit of a legend. He kind of was bolted into superstar status posthumously. There's evidence of this in Acts 19, 3 and 4. When Paul discovers that the people there didn't know anything of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they only knew about the baptism of John. The interesting thing is that Ephesus is a thousand miles away by caravan from Jerusalem. Word about John the Baptist had gotten all over the Roman Empire. Verse 8, John himself was not the light, only a witness to it. 
Although the statement seems to go without saying to us, it clearly needed to be said or John wouldn't have said it. Jesus emerged into prominence in Israel when John the baptizer was at the pinnacle of his prophetic career. And it's clear that initially John's disciples saw Jesus as a threat. The Gospel of John is is careful uh, not to minimize the role of John the baptizer in salvation history. But I would tell you it's even more careful not to put John on the throne where Christ alone should reside. In John 3.22, following, following, a story is relayed about John the baptizer and Jesus. John was baptizing and he was informed by his disciples that Jesus had gone into the baptizing ministry as well. And his disciples were really concerned that the people that were coming to John to be baptized would now go to Jesus. They were afraid they were going to lose their market share. And in verse 27, the baptizer replied, I told you plainly, I am not the Messiah. I've only come to prepare a way for him. And then in one of the most powerful lines in the New Testament, John the baptizer says, he must increase, I must decrease. You see, if we don't watch it, it's really easy to put religious leaders and mentors and prophets and preachers in the place where Christ alone should be. It kind of works like a a solar eclipse. You know, if you think about it, you got the sun here, you got the earth here, and then you got this little moon kind of flashing around the earth. A solar eclipse happens when the moon gets between the earth and the sun. The moon does not occlude the sun because it's bigger than the sun. The, The moon's nowhere near the size of the sun. The moon occludes the sun because it's so much closer to us. And a lot of times, smaller things can appear larger than they are because they're simply so close to us. The bottom line is that putting people on a pedestal, even someone as great as John the baptizer, when you put them on a pedestal, you're putting them in the place where Christ alone should sit. And it becomes a disaster for everybody. How many religious leaders have fallen in our lifetimes and it ends up just being a royal theological mess for everyone? Absolutely, it's a tragedy. Absolutely, Satan is getting glory from that. I'm sure all the demons in hell are laughing their heads off when a religious leader falls. But the bottom line is, if we put people in the place where only Christ should be, if we elevate people who are made of flesh and blood, to the place where only Christ should be. We set ourselves and them up for a mighty fall. See, part of the problem of Christian celebrity is that we have to remember that these Christian celebrities aren't Christ, and the other part of it is they have to remember that they're not Christ. Christ alone should be lifted up in our hearts. Christ alone should sit in the very center of our hearts. And when we put other people there, regardless of how impressive or how much of an impact they've made in our lives, when we put other people there, then they become idols. Verse 9. John proclaimed that the true light was going to come into the world and give light to everyone. Just as the magi were witnesses to the true light, just as the shepherds were witnesses to the true light, 
light, just as John the baptizer was a witness to the true light, we too are called to be witnesses to the true light. In Greek, the language in the New Testament, there are two Greek words that we translate into the single English word, true. The first is alethes, which means true as opposed to false. You're taking a true or false test. Alethes means true. But that's not the word that's used here. John uses the word alethanos, which means genuine as opposed to a fake. So what he's really saying is that Christ is the genuine light. There are a lot of lights in the sky, but there is only one true light, and that is the light of Christ. I wrote a story in my 2012 book exactly as I remember it. I'd love to share with you. It's, it's called Christmas Lights. And it's all about when my kids were little and the drives we used to take around this area. Have you ever noticed the wide variety of things people put in their yards to celebrate Christmas these days? Certainly the nativity scape seems more cluttered than when just baby Jesus and Santa struggled for it a generation ago. When our kids were growing up, we would sometimes drive around at night in mid-December and we would look at all of the decorations. Some folks did nothing to celebrate, others tipped their hats, some used good taste, and some absolutely lost their minds in Clark Griswold or Tim the Toolman fashion. But I have to tell you, it was always the most high wattage, energy-eating, gaudy and over-commercialized of efforts that always got the oohs and ahs from Zach and Lydia when they were small. There were always a few of these homes in the lost their minds category that not only had all kinds of stuff out, but they grouped their decor into clusters the same way that scientists classify animals and plants. Some had Disney characters in one quadrant, Fox characters in the other, Santa's entourage in another, and then you always had the Jesus quadrant. It was the oldest, most dimly lit, and most faded. They normally consisted of three feet high plastic figures of Mary and Joseph with a small light inside. These things weighed about six ounces. They were unbelievably easy to tump over. And on a windy night, you could often find Joseph rolling west down your street. I always figured people bought their plastic plug-in nativities before they franchised into secular markets. And by the time we saw them, they clearly had lost some of their luster, wattage, and paint. I must confess that even my adult eyes are more quickly drawn to the wattage-enhanced, blow-up Frosty the Snowman, bobbing in the wind and churning up fake snow than to the tiny Jesus tucked into the circa 1966 manger with a single bale of hay. I often wonder how people who don't know would know which one was the one. Perhaps that's our problem these days at Christmas. We have trouble spotting Jesus and all the lights. There are five things I'd like to share with you as we... Uh, ratchet this particular message down and then one thing I'd like to invite you to do number one the shepherds were given a celestial birth announcement I just love this you see if, if the Christmas narrative just contained good news for the wise men just good news for the smartest fraction of one percent of the world or the richest fraction of one percent of the world then that news would be limited at best but I love the fact that the most luminous invitation came 
to the shepherds. An angel in the sky, surrounded by the radiance, the glory of the Lord. The shepherds were given an incredible birth announcement. And the message is so clear. Jesus has come for everyone. For everyone. Not just people that get it right all the time, but for absolutely everyone. Number two, the shepherds were invited to see for themselves. I don't know about you, but I'm not a guy that tends to take people's word for stuff. I, I want to see things for myself. I want to I see it. I, I want to hear it. I want to see how things work. I, I'm just not a guy that takes other people's word very easily. I love it that the invitation at Christmas of the angel was not take my word for it, he's there. It's here he is, you go see him for yourself. I love to head about God. God always invites us to participate in what he is doing in our lives. Number three, the shepherds ran to the manger. They didn't walk, they ran to the manger. I did a church service once and they held an invitation. And the guy in charge said, we're only singing one verse. If you want Jesus to touch your life, run up here before it's over and people just ran down the aisles it's interesting to me we often just try to coax people and all of those things and a lot of people are kind of considering Christianity and they're sort of just tipping their toe in the water to see what it's like I just want to tell you the shepherds didn't do that they just jumped right in they just jumped right in they ran to the manger number four the shepherds told everyone what had happened sometimes we tend to keep good news to ourselves. I think God does miracles all the time, but I think we forget them. We don't always know how to talk about them. We, we don't always know how to talk about what God has done in our lives. But the shepherds told everyone what had happened. And then number five, the people who heard it were astonished. They were absolutely blown away. By what the shepherds told him. It may not have surprised them. That wise men came. Led by a star. But that the king of kings. Would appear to shepherds. To the likes of you and me. That was incredible. Today I've talked about. What it means to be a witness to the light. And I want to just offer a real simple way. To be a witness to the light. We're going to hold Christmas Eve services at the Fairview Heights campus on Christmas Eve at 2, 4, and 6. Now we're going to do a getaway service the Thursday before and we're doing a family traditional service uh, that morning at 10. But I want to talk to you right now about the 2, 4, and 6 services. This is going to be an evangelistic musical. It's going to be about one man's journey toward Christ. And and our goal in offering this is not just to show off our music and all the things that we can do well, but to try to touch people's hearts for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to share a message, just a simple message, about how much God loves us. And I'm going to invite people to run down this aisle and to receive the good news of Christ. Your part in it is inviting your friends and your family and your co-workers and your neighbors. Many of them who don't go to church are thinking about going to church on Christmas Eve anyway. It's a culturally acceptable thing to do. And so offer them an invitation. Tell them you'd love to have them come to church with you and sit by you and experience this with you. And then join me in prayer that some of the invitations you offer will be received. 
And there will be people who, like the shepherds, run to the light right here at Christ Church in this Christmas season. You know, this story reminds me that miracles didn't just happen 2,000 years ago in places far away, but they happened right here in 2013 in the places that our feet touched the ground. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, thank you for the incredible announcement that Christ is born. Thank you, dear God, for the invitation to come and see for ourselves. And I pray that you would give us the courage not to walk, but to run to the manger. And then when we see what you have done in our lives, that we would tell everyone what has happened. And I pray that those who hear would not only be astonished, but they would come and see for themselves. We pray for souls for your kingdom. We pray that cold hearts would be made warm. We pray that prodigal sons and daughters would come home in this Christmas season. We pray it in the name of the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.